From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Wednesday, November 28th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. It's not just Americans who are worried about the fiscal cliff. Our biggest trading partners are kind of nervous, too. If America goes off the fiscal cliff, the rope is going to pull Canada right down with it. Same goes for Mexico, which sends most of its exports north. So if the U.S. slows down, our economy tumbles. Also, later, we'll hear why this veteran is suing the Pentagon over the ban on women in combat. It's just completely out of touch with the reality of the wars we're fighting today. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Good vibes in Washington today about that fiscal cliff business. President Barack Obama said a deal is reachable before Christmas, and Republican House Speaker John Boehner said he's optimistic too. But you kind of want to see it before you believe it. And it's not just Americans who want to see it. The prospect of a new U.S. economic slowdown, or worse, a double-dip recession, worries our closest neighbors and biggest trading partners, too. We're going to hear from Mexico in just a moment. First, though, we turn to Canada. Now, there's an expression about what happens when the U.S. economy suffers. When the U.S. sneezes, Canada catches cold. Canada's economy is so tightly tied to the U.S. that the looming fiscal cliff has many Canadians worried. David Aiken is the National Bureau Chief for the Sun newspaper chain in Canada. He's now in Ottawa. David, what is Canada concerned about? What what does America's fiscal cliff mean for Canadians? Well, it means Canada is tied to America. And if America goes off the fiscal cliff, uh, the rope is going to pull Canada right down with it. This is something that I think a lot of Americans sometimes forget about their northern neighbor. But every single day, every single day, one billion, that's billion with a B, one billion dollars worth of goods and services goes across our common border. It is the single largest trading relationship in the world, the relationship between the United States and Canada. And when Americans, if they have a recession or their economy slows down because of this quote-unquote fiscal cliff, that means Americans will be buying less goods and services, less energy from Alberta's oil sands, uh, less lumber from the forests of British Columbia and Quebec. Uh, fewer American tourists may come up over the holidays to go skiing at Canadian ski hills. So, And then there's an additional sort of concern for Canadians, and that is when Americans go into recession, and we saw this during the, the 2008 fiscal crisis, they tend to get more protectionist. And we saw this manifest itself in Washington with the Buy America Act, in which the federal government gave funds to municipalities and states to stimulate the economy, but said you get this federal funding only if you source your construction materials or whatever from American sources, and that shut out Canadian firms. If that does indeed happen, what kind of Canadian businesses will be most affected? Well, I was trying to think. I don't think there's a Canadian business that would be unaffected. And again, we could go through it. Uh, just uh, just yesterday on our East Coast, the lobster season opened. So the, this is the lobster fishery season. Where do those lobsters go? They go down to Boston because they're destined for holiday dinner tables around the United States. Right now, there's a concern that American consumers, 
may not spend much over the holiday season. So you're saying in anticipation of the fiscal cliff, whether or not it's breached, you're saying that Americans and perhaps Canadians are already buckling down. Well, and this is the point that the president has been trying to make in his speech uh, yesterday and uh, you know various public pronouncements that without a deal and a deal quickly, that the retail holiday season could be in peril. So uh, we know we've seen signs of the American economy improving. Job numbers are up, consumer confidence otherwise up. Uh, but this would not be good if consumer confidence went south because everyone thought, oh, my gosh, I've got a bigger tax bill next year. And, David, is there any kind of reaction going on right now in Canada? I mean, I don't know how fast the cause and effect happens. Our prime minister, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, has been asked any number of times over the last uh, five or six weeks what keeps him awake at night. And again, just to, some background here, the Canadian economy is doing relative to its G8 peers tremendously well. Lowest GDP ratios, highest employment rate recovered more quickly from the recession. Our banks were solvent all through the fiscal crisis. No bank in Canada need a penny in a public bailout. So the Canadian economy is doing okay. And when we ask our prime minister and say, well, what what concerns you about the future, the prosperity for the Canadian economy? He says, first, the situation in Europe, that is the immediate for him. Number two, the long-term fiscal health of the American federal government. But why why is that the case? I mean, what would make the prospect of a fiscal cliff different from the recession that Canada went through pretty well? Canada is a small economy that depends heavily on trade. So the issue with Europe, of course, if the EU goes in, continues to be in recession and is not sorting out their fiscal issues, we could see a global recession, which would be terrible for Canada. Knock on wood, we've seen some resolutions there with some deals between the EU and Greece. So now people's concerns in Canada turn towards the United States. And we see this logjam in Washington, a logjam we've seen before, getting kind of close to this cliff. You know, Canada, more than any other country in the world, is going to be affected if the U.S. economy slows down or goes into some sort of contraction. And to be honest, the U.S. does not want to see Canada suffer economically because we're America's biggest customer. So the the two economies are so intertwined. If either economy starts to suffer, it's bad for the other guy. Okay. David Aiken, National Bureau Chief for The Sun newspaper chain in Canada. Thanks. Thank you. So, as we said earlier, when the U.S. sneezes, Canada catches a cold. Well, Eduardo Garcia says that when the U.S. catches a cold, Mexico gets pneumonia. Eduardo Garcia is editor and founder of Mexico's financial website Sentido Comun in Mexico City. Eduardo, why does Mexico contract pneumonia? Well, it's because we're so tied in with the U.S. economy that whatever happens to the largest economy in the world, which is the U.S., affects us tremendously. Just to give you one statistic, 80% of our exports are consumed by U.S. consumers. So if the U.S. slows down, our economy tumbles. What kind of exports are you talking about that go from there to here? Uh, We're talking about autos, refrigerators, televisions, cell phones, electronics, fruits and vegetables. Many things that Americans are consuming come from Mexico. So we're very close together in that sense. But U.S. for Mexico, it's the largest trading partner, while we are the second or third largest partner of of America. We just heard, though, Eduardo, in our interview regarding the Canadian reaction to the potential breach of the fiscal cliff, that during the U.S. mortgage crisis, Canada did fairly well because its banks were relatively conservative. How did that crisis hit Mexico? Well, that exemplifies why we catch an ammonia. Mexico suffered a 6.1% decline in its economic growth rate because of this tremendous dependency between our two nations. This was in 2009 Uh, you're talking about. That's correct. We suffered the biggest decline in our growth 
since the 1994-1995 peso crisis. So it was a huge blow to the Mexican economy. How come so much more of a blow than in Canada? Our banking system was pretty solid, but still people remember the 1994-1995 peso crisis and probably people were very fearful that Mexico would be crushed by the mortgage crisis of the United States. So investment from foreigners dried up. So again, the peso devalued more than was expected and that probably scared people away from the Mexican economy. Is that then, excuse me, a harbinger of of how Mexico might withstand an American dive off the fiscal cliff now? I think it's different now. I think uh, Mexican reserves have grown tremendously since those days. We have about $160 billion in foreign reserves. Our banking system is much more solid than it was. And more importantly, I think our domestic market has grown tremendously since then. And so the support that Mexican consumers could provide to the Mexican economy is much larger today than it was four or five years ago. Just anecdotally, Mexico had its own Black Friday last Friday. How do you refer to Black Friday? We call it El Buen Fin, which means the good weekend. With good reason, because businesses did very well on that weekend. Indeed. uh, Retail sales grew about 30 percent. So that shows you that consumers here are spending more. They have access to credit. Employment has grown here, and that benefits the whole economy and might be a bigger cushion for the blow in case the United States goes under tremendous fiscal cuts and raises taxes and cuts spending. No, Very briefly, Eduardo, what kind of businesses are looking at the U.S. right now as a barometer of their growth? And what kind of businesses are paying most attention to what happens regarding uh, America's financial system in the next few months? Well, I think uh, the auto industry is particularly looking at what happens in the United States. We've become the fourth largest exporter of vehicles in the world. And again, the largest consumer for those cars are U.S. consumers. Therefore, there is a great interest into seeing what happens with the U.S. economy in the next few weeks. And hopefully everything will be okay. Eduardo Garcia runs the financial website Sentido Comun in Mexico City. Thanks again. Take care. So this fiscal cliff, we know what it is, but where is it? And how do you get there? Middle Earth's Alex Galifant has some answers. The fiscal cliff is to be found deep in the land of crisis, near the mountains of Filibust. To venture there is to leave behind the waters of compromise, to ignore the ship by partisan. The fiscal cliff is at the end of the known world. All that lies beyond is, well, February. Now, the fiscal cliff may not appear in any of J.R.R. Tolkien's meticulous maps of Middle-earth. Frodo doesn't go there in The Lord of the Rings, and Bilbo doesn't climb it in The Hobbit. There will be no fantastical fiscal cliff rendered in glorious CGI on big screens next month. That's when The Hobbit movie comes out. But the great wizard Tolkien did have views about America and American values. In 1968, he gave an interview to the BBC. I observe in general that uh, uh, America has always been much more easily kindled than England, or indeed any country in Europe. Kindled in the sense of really getting consumed by the stories. Now, Tolkien thought that wasn't necessarily a good thing, according to Christopher Atwood at Indiana University, Bloomington. Tolkien saw his tales as small drops of water amid great oceans of world culture. And he thought it was so pathetic that people would drink this tiny little drop 
and get so drunk on it, as he said. As he said, a very small drop of water should be so intoxicating. He thought that was a very sad picture of American life. America made Tolkien uneasy. Its size, its relentless industry. He despaired at what factories and railways had done to England, and saw the same situation only worse in the United States. Growth and change, and particularly technological change, was not something that he necessarily valued. And he really had a sense that something horrible had happened to the American natural environment. That there was something fundamentally out of whack. Perhaps Tolkien saw us all heading inexorably towards the cliff, fiscal or worse. But that won't matter next month. There will be one movie to bring them all and in the darkness bind them. The Hobbit will be a blockbuster hit. Not really sticking my neck out on that one. But there will no doubt be those who withstand the pull of Middle Earth. It was ever thus. For decades, people haven't just loved Tolkien stories; they've been obsessed with them. Not least here in the U.S. And in 1968, a couple of students from Oxford University took exception to that. It's an implication of triviality. It's an implication of regression. And it, the cult of the Hobbit in America, particularly, seems to be responding to this sort of failure in engagement with our political and social situation. The trouble is, of course, they make it sound like an intellectualized Doctor Doolittle, and no doubt, before very long, we'll have Lord of the Rings on Ice with Millicent Martin and Margaret Rutherford. But it will become a cult, as it has, is a cult in America now, where the constant symbol is seen: Frodo lives. Back then, in the 1960s, homegrown Tolkien clubs sprouted up across America, producing Frodo buttons and others that read Gandalf for president. Actually, Gandalf would be a pretty good president. He's got the height, the magic, the long beard. I mean, at least know what you're talking about before you criticize it, right? Well, I, of course, haven't actually read Tolkien, but I think it's marvelous. As if I go to a cocktail party or something like this and spend twenty intensely boring minutes talking to a secretary <laughs> about her father's foot and mouth on the farm. I then ask her, "Have you read Tolkien?" And they always have, and they give you the plot for the next half hour. If we're going to send anything over the fiscal cliff, can it just be him? For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. There's BBC footage of Tolkien discussing his work. Take a look at theworld.org. And later, we've got letters, lots of them, up for auction from some pretty interesting writers. That's coming up on PRI Public Radio International. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is the World. Women make up 14% of U.S. active duty military personnel, and they've long been in the line of fire. They fight and die in uniform. Officially, though, women are banned by the Pentagon from serving in most direct combat positions. Well, this week, four female service members filed a federal lawsuit to change that. They're being represented by the American Civil Liberties Union. One of the four is Marine Corps Reserve Captain Zoe Bedell. She's 27 years old. She's been deployed twice in Afghanistan. On her second tour there, Captain Bedell was in charge of the Female Engagement Team, or FET, in Afghanistan's Helmand Province. Bedell says that the nature of modern warfare meant that the female Marines she commanded often saw combat. One thing about the wars these days is that there isn't such a thing as a front line versus 
safe zone or behind the lines. If you are in Iraq or Afghanistan, you are on the front line. Okay, so it's a case of irregular warfare when suddenly exactly. in one minute you can be on the front line, even if that area had not seen combat before. Okay, exactly. so if, Zoe, you already served in a frontline role, then why is this lawsuit even necessary? The problem is that this policy says that I can't serve in a frontline role. So first of all, it's just completely out of touch with the reality of the wars we're fighting today. So as I said, anyone in Iraq or Afghanistan is really on the front lines, but the policy says that women can't serve on the front lines. So as a result, then, commanders are having to take these bizarre steps to try to stay in line with the policy that doesn't match the reality. So you're trying to sort of hit the technical points, but it makes things complicated, and frankly, it makes things dangerous. How was it complicated for you or dangerous for you? One example is our teams were required to do these resets, which meant that our teams were out, you know, they're living in these remote places, they're operating, but once every 45 days, they would have to return to a big base. Traveling in Afghanistan is not easy, right? You have to get to a base that's big enough to support a helicopter, so you're putting people on the road. Uh, the roads are not safe. You have to fly around in a helicopter. That that is you know, one of the other plaintiffs that was shot down in her helicopter. And you're pulling people away from their mission. So they're interrupting the flow of the operations. And we had commanders who have to would be rescheduling major operations based on when they could have FET support on the ground there. Oh, sorry, um, based on when they could have what? I'm sorry, female engagement team support, which we call FET. So, so the females have to go back to this base how often, you said? We had to do it every 45 days. And the men don't? No, absolutely not. What, what's and, the reason anyway that the military gives for uh, such a reset, for taking you out of theater? Right. So it, was, yeah, so it was trying to avoid the co-locations so trying to keep us from being located on the ground too long because that violated the policy. So one would understand why that would be frustrating for everyone, men and women. Absolutely. If absolutely. You're, okay. And you said it's dangerous because... It's dangerous because, A, you're making people travel unnecessarily. But also because now, you know, if, if, if we need women to do these missions and now you're depriving people of women, I mean, because it takes so long to travel, we could be gone for a week. You're letting relationships lag and you're not there to provide support when the units go out to patrol. So that makes it dangerous not only for the women doing the traveling, but also for the men who are still on the ground. Exactly. And you make the argument that professionally, you're saying that you do not have access to something like 238,000 jobs that the armed forces categorizes as basically women need not apply. How does that affect your career if you choose to have one in the military? When you look at the top positions in the military, generals and very top senior enlisted positions, I think the, the statistic we use are that 80 percent of those jobs are for people in the combat arms field. And the combat arms field is specifically what's close to women. So that means that the vast majority of the people being promoted to these top positions are coming from areas that women aren't allowed to serve in at all. Well, Captain, you have, as you well know, strong opponents in this, including some people in the military who say that being barred from frontline combat does not hamper, contrary to what you're saying, uh, your career prospects or any woman's career prospects. I want you to hear now a piece of audio that we have from a retired military officer who served in Iraq. His name is Troy Stewart. He is basically telling the newspaper Newsday that women are not held back professionally because they're excluded from combat. There's a number of reasons why women in the U.S. military have never been allowed to serve in ground combat positions. And I can tell you that there are enough women, including the recently retired four-star General Dunwoody, who have had no problem getting promoted 
and doing well and succeeding in the military without having to serve in frontline infantry units. So I think their argument is significantly flawed. What do you say to that argument? Well, you know, one of the, the points there is he made about the, the four-star generals. There have only been two of those in the history of the armed forces, two female four-star generals. Just because you know, one woman manages to, to do it doesn't mean that it's an equal playing field for everyone. But how, how would somebody like uh, General uh, Dunwoody even accomplish that if you're saying you, you simply can't make it that high if you're a woman who hasn't seen combat? I'm not saying that you simply can't, right? So 80% of the general positions are filled by people who have combat arms backgrounds. That means there's 20% that aren't, uh, right? So, you know, there are there are opportunities there, but it, it's not equal. Women are being categorically disadvantaged in that competition. Uh, the Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, has said that nearly 15,000 combat positions have been opened up to women just during his time in office. So I wonder, and you, you were talking about how the, the law is kind of fudged in the on the battlefield anyway. So do you see this as kind of a don't ask, don't tell type policy that is slowly being morphed? I mean, that one regarding regarding gays in the military. Do you think that there is this slow accommodation now to make it more acceptable, palatable to allow women in combat and it's just a matter of time? Yes, it clearly is moving that way. The military is opening and we, the Department of Defense is making those changes and we absolutely appreciate that. The problem is, well, they've opened 15,000 jobs. There's still 238,000 that are closed. So it's incremental and the core policy still remains in effect. So, you know, if the, if the Department of Defense announced tomorrow that they're opening everything, that's fantastic. That's, we don't need to solve this through the courts if there's another way, but the progress is not happening fast enough and it's time for this policy to go. Thank you very much, U.S. Marine Corps Reserve Captain Zoe Bedell, one of the four plaintiffs challenging the Pentagon's policy that bars women from some combat roles. She served two tours of duty in Afghanistan. Thank you, Captain. Thank you very much for having me. You can check out our previous stories on female engagement teams in Afghanistan and see a slideshow of women soldiers in the battlefield at theworld.org. A letter written by Vincent Van Gogh is your first clue for today's GeoQuiz. Van Gogh's handwritten letter is addressed to the proprietor of a certain cafe where the Dutch painter liked to hang out. So we're looking for the name of the city in the south of France where you can find this little cafe. It's in the French region of Provence. Van Gogh lived in the city for a couple of years. He painted up a storm all the while. He made more than 300 paintings and drawings while he lived here. He even painted the cafe itself, called the Café de la Gare, as well as the owner, Madame Ginou. The letter that Van Gogh wrote to her is about to go up for auction. We're going to hear more about that when we come back with the answer in the second half of the program. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, Pakistan's Parsi community. It's shrinking in size and young Parsis are finding it harder to find a partner. But there's always help. We always say the grandmas and the aunties all have a club and they all sort of cohorts together and try and hook people up. That story and much more coming up on The World. 
CRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The votes for and against are lining up at the United Nations. UN General Assembly members are expected to vote tomorrow on whether to recognize Palestine as a non-member observer state. A yes vote is all but certain at this point, and that could open up a new legal pathway for the Palestinians to challenge Israel. The world's Matthew Bell has more from Ramallah. It all sounds very bureaucratic. What the Palestinian Liberation Organization is seeking is an upgrade in status from the current observer entity to non-member observer state. It's essentially a symbolic change. PLO official Hanan Ashrawi today said this is about securing the rights of Palestinians. She said Israeli settlement building, the annexation of Jerusalem, and control of natural resources are destroying the two-state solution. It is a last-ditch effort because we believe that the two-state solution is in jeopardy and we would like to ensure that the world is still committed to the establishment of a sovereign, viable, democratic, free Palestinian state to interact as an equal. Israel and the United States are opposed to the move. They say it's a violation of past agreements. The only way to statehood for Palestine, say U.S. and Israeli officials, is through negotiations with Israel. Ashrawi pointed out that several European countries, including France, Spain, and Denmark, don't feel that way. And she said it's not too late for the U.S. to get on the right side of history by, at the very least, abstaining from the U.N. vote. If they can't vote yes, at least do not vote no. Because that would be seen as being really pathetic by the rest of the world. The Arab world, I mean, everybody knows that this vote is not motivated by any principles and and any commitment to genuine peace. Then they will have a role to play by regaining some of their credibility. A big question is whether the Palestinians would use their upgraded U.N. status to access the International Criminal Court and open legal cases against Israel. Ashrawi refused to give any details, but said the Palestinians would reserve that right. In any case, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas says he will be ready to return to negotiations with Israel after the U.N. bid plays out. Officials with Hamas have come out in support of Abbas's U.N. move. In a legal sense, the resolution to be voted on tomorrow includes implicit recognition of the U.N. resolution that paved the way for the creation of Israel back in 1947. Does that mean Hamas is making an historic leap by recognizing the Jewish state? I put that question to Ahmed Atun today. He's a leader with the Islamic movement in the West Bank. No, he said, Hamas is not giving any recognition to Israel by supporting Mahmoud Abbas at the United Nations. He said seeking Palestinian statehood at the UN must not include giving up any Palestinian rights, including Jerusalem and the right of all refugees to return to their homes in Israel. In the Kalandia refugee camp in Ramallah, there are mixed feelings about the Palestinian president's UN effort. Mohammed Himmo is a 40-year-old father who makes a living doing deliveries on his custom moped. 
نحن هذا اللي بنقول كيف اذن الله الله يفونها علينا بس شوف I hope something comes out of it but we have been working on this recognition for the last 40 years if not more and no one has really given any attention to us Kids are playing at an after-school center down the street. One of the supervisors here is a 25-year-old who has spent time in Israeli jails. He is very cynical about the UN bid. When President Abbas delivered a speech about Palestinian statehood at UN headquarters last year, the young man says he was not impressed. Please, we are poor, we are useless, we are weak. Please help us, please. This is what he was doing. He was crying for mercy for other country. We don't need any mercy, you know. We can't keep fighting. We don't need politics. At one time, Israeli officials were signaling drastic reprisals if the Palestinians went through with their plans tomorrow. But now they're saying they'll wait and see. If the UN bid is successful and Palestinians do take Israel to the International Criminal Court, Israeli officials say punitive actions will be taken. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Ramallah in the West Bank. People in the West African country of Mali are also waiting for a decision by the United Nations. Islamic extremists have seized control of the northern part of Mali. So nearly a half million northerners have fled their homes. Many have headed south. They're taking refuge in the southern capital, Bamako. They're hoping that the U.N. will soon authorize a military intervention to oust the Islamists. But as Bonnie Allen reports from Bamako, many people are frustrated by what they see as the international community's lack of urgency. In the cliffside outskirts of Bamako, the Yatara family home is crammed full of relatives who have fled the north of Mali to the south. Fune Diko speaks in Tamashek, a northern dialect. She says there isn't enough food for everyone and her ten children are not going to school. The family matriarch, Nasru Yatara, seems overwhelmed, trying to host her extended family and feed 40 additional mouths. But she can't send her relatives back to the north. These are my sisters and my brothers, she says. I have to keep them at my house. They can't go somewhere else. Though it's true, I have nothing. But some of her family members have already gone home, fearful of what awaits them, yet unwilling to stay away any longer. At a chaotic bus station in Bamako, some displaced northerners load their belongings on top of a battered green bus heading north. In Mali, northerners are known as proud people, embarrassed to be a burden on their relatives, tired of being hungry and trapped in the city, far away from their land, businesses, livestock and homes. Retired businessman Idara Sidi says that pride is driving them home despite the danger. I can go back to where I belong, where I have my home. Even if I do not fight personally, I can be there in times of combat. The situation in Mali couldn't be more complicated. A coup in March created a power vacuum in the country, and several rebel groups capitalized on that. Touareg separatist rebels declared an independent homeland in the north, but soon lost control to several radical Islamist militias. Al-Qaeda-linked militants with ties to drugs and arms smuggling are now controlling most of the north and imposing a strict form of Sharia law. Mali's government is seeking international intervention to oust the Islamists in the north. We need help. Our government won't be able to, to manage this situation. Maybe we don't have petrol 
to give to the world. We don't have diamonds, but we still are human beings. That's a Malian woman I'll call Hawa, who grew up in the north. Like many women I've interviewed here, she doesn't want to give her full name or have her picture taken. She's too afraid to risk the safety of her family in the north. She was hoping for a quick military offensive to drive out the rebels and Islamist militants, and she feels betrayed by recent reports of more measured plans to train the Malian army and negotiate with warring factions. My feeling is that there is no priority on that. We feel that we are not important, our country is not important, the lives there are not important, then there is no priority on that. No priority at all. Nobody cares about it, actually. At a community center in Bamako, women from northern cities share their stories. One woman, cloaked in a white gown, shows me a photo she secretly snapped with her cell phone inside a hospital in the city of Gao. In it, a boy lies on a cot with his amputated arm and leg wrapped in bandages. She tells me he was punished for defending his family's store. The rebels, they used to take all the phones because they don't want people to take pictures of this kind of pictures. Local health worker Adama Koyate translates for the women. He says it's a terrible situation for the people who stayed behind. They are being killed. Lots of children cannot eat. They cannot go to the normal schools. Women cannot go out. It should stop. It should be stopped right now. But these women know there's no quick solution, and they seem defeated by that reality. For The World, I'm Bonnie Allen, Bamako, Mali. One of Pakistan's most prominent columnists passed away over the weekend. Adashir Kawasji was known as a straight talker and a relentless crusader against corruption. The 86-year-old also happened to be the most well-known Parsi in Pakistan. The Parsis are a community of Zoroastrians. They follow the religion of ancient Persia. In Pakistan, they're concentrated mostly in the port city of Karachi, but that community is now in decline. Fahad Desmukh reports on how Pakistan's Parsis are dealing with the changes. It isn't easy these days being a Parsi. I mean, we talked, I said, but I said, we everyone like, wants me to marry you. Will you marry me? <laughs> yeah, you did say that. And then we laughed. He about proposed it. with a coke ring, though. From a, yeah, from a coke can. <laughs> that first joking conversation actually led to marriage for Zain Bayramji and Tashan Mystery. They are a twenty-something Parsi couple now living in Karachi. Five years ago, they met at an international Zoroastrian youth event in Australia. I didn't want to go at first. I was pretty hesitant because I thought it was more focused on religion than anything else. I wanted to make a holiday out of it. That's where I met Josh. And, uh, but we don't, I, have, a, we don't I, have arranged marriages, but we have a lot of pressure coming from people's like parents' friends. We always say the grandmas and the aunties all have a club and they all sort of cohorts together and try and hook people up. Bayramji was born and raised in Karachi, went to Canada for college, and now works at his family's brokerage firm. Mystery was born in Washington, D.C., and was living across the border in Mumbai, India, before their marriage. I didn't realize that it would really work out because a week after the Congress, we met in Melbourne, and from there, we were flying, we started talking and everything, and then we flew back to India and Pakistan, and we spoke in the plane for like 10 hours and decided to... (laughs) <laughs> being in a relationship. <laughs> they got married in Mumbai last year. Mystery moved to Karachi to live with Bayramji. Her move comes at a time when the population of Parsis in Pakistan is dwindling. 
There are now fewer than 1,700, down from over 7,000 several decades ago, mostly here in Karachi. The Parsi community is defined largely by their adherence to the Zoroastrian religion, the religion of ancient Persia. Sometimes they're referred to as fire worshippers because of the central role that fire plays in their rituals. Their temples each have a consecrated fire that burns continuously. Some have been kept alive for centuries. Here, priests are gathered around a small fire in a community center and are reciting a prayer in an ancient dialect of Persian. The priests wear masks covering their mouths and noses so that the fire isn't desecrated by their breath or saliva. According to tradition, a group of Zoroastrians arrived in South Asia over a thousand years ago, fleeing the Muslim conquest of Persia. The community prospered, especially as merchants. The Parsi community in Karachi has always been a small minority, but it's left an unmistakable legacy. One of the most celebrated mayors of Karachi was a Parsi, serving for 12 years, and buildings and schools named after prominent Parsi businessmen dot the old city. But this legacy is now at risk. Parsis have a lower birth rate than the national average, and there's more and more intermarriage. So Mystery and Bairamji's families were relieved that they both got married to Parsis. Another major reason for the dwindling population in Karachi is migration to Western countries. Bairamji, for example, says the majority of his relatives now live in the West, mostly in the US, Canada, or the UK. Everyone's... Um They've left the country, like, I wouldn't even say 10% a year now. And I'd, I'd say maybe 50% have left in my lifetime, so. In recent years, the motivation to leave Pakistan has been compounded by the extremely volatile political and security conditions, the sentiment that's reflected among both the young and old in the community. This is Ala Rustamji, a 55-year-old homemaker. She says she'd be happy to stay in Pakistan for the rest of her life. But for my children who are in their early 20s, I am not very happy at all. I would like the first opportunity to get them out of the country. I'm sorry to say, though I love Pakistan and I would like them to be here, but I do not see a very good future for them. More than half the Parsi population in Karachi now is over 50 years old. The local clergy is aging without anyone to replace them. I mean, at our fire temple, we have three priests. Two are more than over 80 years old. One is relatively young. This is Shavir Bairamji, Zain Bairamji's uncle and a managing trustee of one of the two fire temples in the city. He says the only trained Zoroastrian priests now are in India, and he says they tell him they won't move to Pakistan for all the money in the world. Given the rate at which the population is declining, Bairamji says it's entirely possible that there soon won't be a Parsi presence in Karachi. Let's face it, we are a declining population. There's not much you can do about it, except for openly converting, which we are all against. So it's a fact of life that we are diminishing, we're a dying breed, and um, let's just try and do the best we can what we have. Even for Mystery and Zain Bairamji, the prospect of leaving Karachi isn't ruled out. Over the generations, their families have moved from Iran through India and Pakistan to North America and Australia, making another move, they say, is something their stock is used to. I think it's just that we've been forced to do it for the past 600 years. That it's yeah, we did it a thousand years ago. <laughs> Not so hard now. For the world, I'm Fahad Desmuk in Karachi, Pakistan. Our global hit is on the way. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Email and texting have all but eclipsed the good old-fashioned letter, but there's a collection of historic letters we want to tell you about now. The collection's going up for auction next month in California, and Marsha Milanowski is overseeing the auction for the company Profiles in History. One letter is written by Vincent van Gogh. What was on his mind then? It was written on the 20th of January, 1890, just seven months before his death. And he writes to Monsieur and Madame Genoux, who owned a cafe in Arles that he frequented. And he finds out that Madame Genoux had not been feeling well and writes a very heartfelt letter to her. And probably the most amazing line in this beautiful letter that's written in French, he writes, illnesses are there to make us remember, again, that we are not made of wood. And, you know, illness gives us a human side. And I just think it's one of the most thoughtful, beautiful letters that I've seen of Van Gogh's. And this cafe that you're talking about, was it the cafe where he did? Uh, it was called Café de la Gare, and it was in Arles, and it's where he spent a lot of time. Time, um, drinking absinthe and also doing some paintings. He did a portrait of Madame Genoux. I think he did Starry Night there as well, didn't he? I believe he did. And this is in Arles again, Arles, France, in southern France, which is the answer to the geo quiz today. So let's turn to another. And I understand this is one of your personal favorites, Charles Darwin's letter. There's a, a fantastic Charles Darwin letter that goes with the first edition of The Origin of Species. And the letter is a series of eight pages of notes about all the different trees and shrubs and plants he wants to put on his own property. He was very fascinated with not only um, doing all sorts of botanical works for science, but also in his own backyard. And I just think it shows a very real dimension of the man. His own backyard in Cambridge, England. I think that garden's still there now. It certainly is. Talk about the letter that you have from uh, Napoleon. It is a letter by the artist Jacques-Louis David, who was Napoleon's court painter and did all the coronation paintings of Napoleon and Josephine. And it's a letter from David telling him when he's going to get his paintings done, um, because apparently Napoleon wants his coronation pictures. And so David is a little bit behind the gun trying to uh, get everything done for the emperor. Another one, and rock and roll fans might enjoy this, a letter from Beatle John Lennon to the British guitarist Eric Clapton at the time. Uh, what was that about? It's a draft of a letter. It is long. It goes on for eight pages, and it's all in Lennon's hand, and he really wants to bring a group together, and he thinks Clapton is, has the right talent to be able to help him. Now, this wasn't the Beatles he was asking Clapton to join. This was the Plastic Ono Band. Exactly, exactly. I don't know if you have the letter there, but do you remember one line from it when you say it was heartfelt? Um, it's very warm, and he just signs it with love from John and Yoko. He just feels as if he's got the talent. I don't have the letter in front of me, unfortunately. It is in a vault right now, but it will be coming out for a highlights exhibition here in New York next week. Who has the worst penmanship? Who has the worst? Tchaikovsky, Beethoven. The musicians always do. Yes, <laughs> yes. You know, if you look at Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, you would never even know what language they're writing in. I mean, but someone like Cole Porter and Wagner, they're in a different league. Um, They had much better penmanship. But for the most part, I would say eight out of ten times you're going to have a composer who can barely spell. How about Sigmund Freud? Sigmund Freud has a beautiful hand and also one in a a very large hand. Um, It shows, in my mind, that he had a very solid ego. (laughs) Um, I wonder if you can tell us, how much do these letters generally go for? 
Well, there are things in the two to three thousand dollar range, and there are things in the three hundred to five hundred thousand dollar range. Who's, so who's on the cheaper some, range? Um, on the cheaper range, you can get a nice little Civil War letter from a soldier. You can get, let's see, Jackie Kennedy letter um, for ten to fifteen thousand, and then on the higher end, um, we're talking about Washington, Jefferson, Einstein, um, Leo Lazar talking about the atom bomb. You can even get a Walt Disney letter to his school, to his favorite school teacher. I just wonder for you, Marcia, what it's like when you hold these letters. Does your mind kind of just have a flight of fancy? Well, no, it's, it's great. It's just you really do feel as if you're learning a little bit more about history, um, and it's something that has always fascinated me. It just makes so much history seem more real when you actually can touch and feel this material. Any kind of secrets you can tell us about these letters, like any good coffee splotches or cigarette burns or anything else? <laughs> Let's see. The Van Gogh letter has some splotches on it, but I think that's just because he really used crummy paper because he couldn't afford um, good paper and he was more interested in buying his paints than his writing paper. No big splotches that I can think of. Well, if it's a splotch from Van Gogh, that's worth a lot. <laughs> if, it was, if it was a piece of pigment, it would be great. Marsha Milanowski telling us about the rare letters in the Profiles in History collection that's coming up for auction in California next month. Nice to speak with you. Thank you. And finally today, we hear about two African musicians who died too soon, but whose music lives on. Tom Schnabel of Station KCRW tells us about them. Two African albums uh, came across my desk that I'd like to focus on. The first one is by Zani Jabate and Les Héritiers, which means the heirs. He was born in 1947, and he grew up in Malian's Authenticité cultural program, Authenticity. It stressed roots and identity rather than European influences, which, which were coming in on recordings. The new album is called Tintalao, and it was the last recording he made. In fact, he died just a couple of weeks after this recording was made and never really got to hear it, but it retains all of the great grooves that made him famous. So I'd like to start off with this track from uh, Zani Jabate. The piece is called Mali Yafa. A track from the very last album just out from Malian star Zani Jabate and the Airs. It's called Mali Yafa. Another CD focuses on a really important artist in Guinea. His name is Sori Kandia Koyate. The new album, and it's a two-album set, is called La Voix de la Révolution. He was very active during 1958's independence from France. He played an Austrian concert with uh, the great Paul Robeson. He met Charles de Gaulle, and he died very, very early at the age of 44 in 1977. His voice is everything. Few other singers could match him. He has that big, penetrating griot voice. I think you'll hear it on this track by Sori Kandia Koyate from Guinea. This is called Minawa.
great music from two African artists, Sori Kandia Koyate from Guinea and Zani Jabate from Mali, two artists who uh, who really left us too soon, but they're both great artists, and these two albums really celebrate their legacy. was Tom Schnabel of KCRW in Santa Monica, California. You can watch old performances by both of the artists Tom mentioned. They're at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for being with us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org PRI Public Radio International